course, I think Andy Zaltzman's very good at satire. <laughs> Welcome to today's episode of The Comical Heathen. This is your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe. Uh, thanks for coming along on my wild and weird journey into the world of religious satire. Today's interview guest is Alice Frazier from Australia. Very excited to talk to her. She just released her new special on Amazon Prime, Savage. She also launched her own podcast, uh, her own new podcast uh, this year, 2020, called The Last Post. Uh, we'll get to uh, that interview in a moment. Very grateful for her to uh, call in from Australia. Before we get to that interview, I want to go over a couple of uh, housekeeping uh, issues. If you uh, were listening to the last couple episodes or looking at the website, you know that I've, I've been rolling out the live version of this show, The Comical Heathen Live. Just at the beginning of March, we did a show in Columbus at Mad Lab. We had a nice audience. It was a great experience. A lot of laughs. Plus, I learned a lot about uh, the show. And I have it slash had it booked at a number of upcoming venues. So, like a lot of entertainers and comedians right now, because of the coronavirus pandemic, all of the current shows that I had booked are now postponed or canceled. I actually put a notice up on my website. Uh, not that any of you noticed uh, to that effect. I do have a couple of festivals that I'm accepted to this summer, but we don't know if those festivals are happening yet or not. So just keep tuning in to the podcast and watch the website and I'll have updates about the Comical Heathen live show. But as of now, all the currently scheduled ones are canceled or postponed. As you may know, me and my wife are uh, rabbit lovers and we have a couple of uh, beautiful Holland Lops called Kelvin and Newton. And there have been stories in the news lately about how the coronavirus might affect pets. You know, uh, so it's on our minds as pet owners and animal lovers. As of now, the way it's reported is that apparently it's potentially possible for animals to get the virus from um, the humans around them. None of the animals, lions, tigers, or cats, that have uh, tested positive for the coronavirus have gotten any symptoms or been ill, thankfully. I'm not too worried about it in terms of our own pets, but my wife... She's a little crazier than me, so she actually is a little worried about this. You know, protective uh, mother. She loves Kelvin and Newton, so she watches over them. And I'm more worried about my wife. You know, I don't want her to be worried. So it's kind of like uh, paying the worry forward. She's worried about the rabbits. I'm worried about her. As of now, all are well, though. As I've mentioned before, one of the unexpected side effects of keeping rabbits is that as we line their cages with newspapers, I found myself reading newspaper headlines again. You know, when was the last time you sat back with a newspaper and just, you know, read a newspaper? I love reading, and I can't even remember the last time I held a physical newspaper. Surely over a year, uh, in terms of reading one or over your cup of coffee or in the morning. So that's a, a lost experience. But I've recaptured some of that nostalgic memories, some of that nostalgic experience. Uh, by looking at the headlines of uh, the newspapers we put in the rabbit's cages. And uh, certain types of headlines pop out for me. I consider this information a sin. That's why I call it misinformation. And sometimes I see headlines with misinformation about uh, religion or science or spreading um, pseudoscience and pseudomedicine. When I see stories like these, I have this 
urge, this compulsion to set the record straight because it's good for our souls to know things. And I'm not trying to ruin anybody's good time, but hey, might be your dogma, but it's my karma. And I'm all about spreading the love, you know, with a side order of facts. For example, in the uh, months of March and April, I've seen a lot of articles at the bottom of the rabbit cage about how some churches, faith healers, and evangelical leaders have been behaving during this current coronavirus crisis. A bunch of faith healers in California last month decided to cancel a big conference they were planning. Uh, faith healers afraid of a new disease. Well, that just sent the hypocrisy meter straight into the red. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Call Merriam-Webster. Tell them we're going to have to update the definition of hypocrisy again. These faith healers are running away from the coronavirus like it was the IRS or scientist or the amazing Randy. They were going to hold this event at the brand new Legacy International Convention Center, which conveniently combines a ministry site with a premium resort. It's a $200 million project near San Diego by televangelist Morris Sorello. $200 million, people. Fuck, I could almost pay off my student loans. Almost. I mean, you'd think that with the $200 million, they could actually heal some people. You know, donate it to hospitals or orphans and stuff. I mean, forget the Creation Museum and their so-called replica of Noah's Ark. Sorello has built a $200 million exact replica of the conference center Jesus had in the Bible in the Gospel of Hospitality and Tourism. One of the scheduled attendees was well-known demonophobe Kenneth Copeland. You might remember Copeland from an earlier story about he justified buying a new private jet because flying commercial would mean sharing, and I quote, a long tube with a bunch of demons. And Jesus rode in on a donkey. But the Bible doesn't say if it was a private donkey or just a regular demon-possessed one. Anyway, Copeland could never ride a donkey. Evangelicals are opposed to too much ass-on-ass -ass action. And because of the coronavirus, Copeland is only doing faith healing through YouTube now, which is good. Uh, now you don't even have to touch him or put on pants. Hashtag every Sunday is pantless Sunday. So these particular faith healers, you know, were smart enough to join the rest of us staying at home. I imagine uh, if that was an awkward meeting where they had to decide whether or not to cancel this event. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of that one. Uh, so uh, how married are you guys to this whole God will save us idea? Of course, it was either that or risk making public prayer promises that could clearly fail within a matter of days. And yet, some churches continue to hold live services, despite warnings for most state officials not to have large gatherings. For example, here in Ohio, there's a church called Solid Rock Church, and it's still holding services. Solid Rock, sort of a ridiculous name, considering it's a church built of timber and plaster and stuff. And didn't it say on the news that the coronavirus can survive on surfaces such as solid rock for up to 72 hours? Oh, but hey, quick disclaimer. I'm a doctor, but I'm not a doctor doctor, so don't quote me on that. You know, I'm a doctor like Dr. Phil is a doctor, not a doctor. In a press release, the leaders of Solid Rock Church said that at times like this, people should ask for God's help. To which God was heard replying, Dude, I already created all the doctors, the scientists, the public health officials, and Netflix. What more do you want me to do? Here's a piece of gum. Would you like chewing lessons? 
P.S. Dear Solid Rock Church, if your God does exist, he also invented the coronavirus. So respect the majesty of his creation and stay the fuck home like everyone else. I mean, I've heard of Typhoid Mary, but coronavirus Jesus is a new one for me. The church defended its actions by saying it is not making anyone attend services. It's completely optional. Oh, but they do note that your attendance will count more towards getting into heaven than into college. This is like the same as saying if you don't like hearing the President of the United States lying all the time, you have the option of not listening. It's not quite the point at hand, is it? And remember, people, there's more than one type of deadly virus. Stupid ideas can kill a person, and they're just as contagious. Evangelicals have a higher-than-average divorce rate, but they also had a higher-than-average voting for Trump rate. So maybe making good decisions just isn't their thing. And these evangelical preachers sure like to spread stuff. The good news, the coronavirus, their secretary's legs, <coughs> Jim Baker, <coughs> Jim Baker. Most churches, it should be noted, are in fact closed, and some are holding virtual services. Which reminds us, if there is a God, he is everywhere. And if he's everywhere, that includes places that aren't church. Ergo, no need to be inside a church to worship him. Hashtag, every Sunday is Pantless Sunday. I guess they could use pages from the Bible to make face masks, as long as they don't mind people walking up to them going, what is that on your face, man? Is that Deuteronomy? Wait until they run out of toilet paper. Then that Bible will become surprisingly useful. These are crazy times, my friends. Look at what's happened here. Faith healers are admitting they can't cure you. Churches are admitting you don't have to go to church. And I'm not wearing any pants. Hashtag every Sunday is pantless Sunday. Which brings us to today's interview guest. This is Alice Frazier. You may know her as a regular panelist of The Bugle with Andy Zaltzman. Uh, and she has her own new podcast called The Last Post, a daily satirical podcast that's available on all the podcast platforms. She has a new show on Amazon. It's on Amazon Prime. Go check it out. It's called Savage. And Alice Skyped in from Australia. We had a chance to talk. A couple of things that came up. We talked about the difference between American like comedy club style comedy and European slash festival show style comedy. That was pretty interesting. And uh, when talking about religious satire, she brought up the point that in a way it it's in sync with our current political climate's bipartisan character of like two camps and two extreme points of view. So, hey, let's listen along. Let's find out what Alice has to say. And uh, here it is, my interview with Alice Frazier. Uh, hey, this is Dr. Jerry Jaffe. Welcome to the Comical Heathen. Today, I am very thrilled to be interviewing uh, from um, Australia, Alice Frazier. Alice, how are Hello. you? Excellent. I'm, I'm very well, thank you. I'm here in Australia, which is not actually usual for me, despite being an Australian. I'm normally based in London, but at the moment, uh, because of this virus that's going around, I've uh, come back to Australia to kind of ride it out with a better healthcare system. <laughs> Future historians who are listening to this podcast to document what was going on in early 21st century comedic <laughs> culture should be aware that uh, this is April 20th, and we are in the midst of the global pandemic known as the coronavirus. 
So I'm sure Alice and I will be making references to it off and on for the next little bit. So that's a little context for those of you who don't know what we're talking about. Hey, uh, how is the coronavirus and whatever kind of a lockdown is going on in Australia affecting comedy in your part of the world? Well, so I, I, I flew back to Australia in order to do the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the Sydney International Comedy Festival, the Perth Comedy Festival, and then my plan was to go back to London, run right. that same show in and get it ready for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, right. which is the biggest comedy festival in the world, despite being embedded in a fringe festival. Right. All of those have been cancelled. Sort of the next five or six months of my year, what I thought they were going to look like uh, is no longer a thing. That's no longer how my life looks, <laughs> and that's an odd feeling. Yeah, I mean, I know, of course, I know a lot of comedians, uh, many in the U.S., and a, a lot of you know the full-time pros who depend on their shows feel kind of adrift. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild, and I'm not quite sure what it's going to do to the industry as a whole, really. Right. Uh, so many of my friends who rely on live work for their income have just mm -hmm. had this sit-down conversation with their agents where their agent has gone, every gig for the next six months is gone. Right. So your lifestyle, your rent, and for many comedians, your addiction, your <laughs> way of engaging with yourself, sure. your way of feeling real, your way of expressing yourself, your way of connecting with others is gone. And uh, Instagram Live, fun though it is, is not <laughs> quite a replacement for that essential human connection no, and... of comedian to audience. Part sure. of what every joke is, is a, it's a question. Every joke is a question. You're going, eh? And the audience <laughs> goes, eh. You, you have, it, it, part of it is going, is this a thing? Is this... And you can feel with the audience, with every joke, you can feel how they're laughing, not just if they're laughing, which is important, but how mm -hmm. they're laughing, what what they think of what you're saying. You stay in touch with uh, the doxa, the, the shared sort of consciousness of a community, and you can you shift your comedy in very subtle ways, week to week, month to month, year to year. And that's part of the job of a comedian is to stay in touch with those, um, <laughs> to sound like a hippie, those vibes, those sort sure. of shifts in attitude and opinion. If you were a comedian, and you've, you've, I'm sure you've seen them, <laughs> if you were a comedian who started in the 90s or the 2000s and took, say, five years off and then came back mm -hmm. in, you know, in the early 2010s, say, and thought that your jokes would work, mm -hmm. they absolutely would not. Because in that five years, you had this shift from lad culture, from a kind of comedy that was about deliberately saying naughty things because everybody knew that you didn't mean them, right? to absolutely being unacceptable to say those things. Because in that time, society shifted to a belief or an understanding, depending on what side of politics you fall, either a belief or an understanding that these small jokes, these mm -hmm. jokes that were saying terrible things had a cumulative effect of damaging particular people or particular right. minorities. That there was a, even if they weren't meant to be uh, degrading of the fabric of society, right? There, that, that attitude shifted within the audiences or within many audiences. Mm -hmm. And so you would have come out with this exactly the same joke, whatever it would happen to be, that was just a, a little bit shocking, a little bit deliberately shocking. Right. And you would have been treated like a pariah or just not laughed at. Right. Uh, or you would have got a gasp where you would normally have gotten a laugh. 
So we mentioned that it's April 20th in my part of the world. I guess it's already transitioned to April 21st in your part of the world. The yes. um, So this past weekend, your new comedy special came out on Amazon Prime called Savage. Yes, it did. Yeah. So A, That's congratulations. Very exciting. And B, how's it been going? How's your weekend? How's the premiere going? You had a watch party. How do you feel about it all? It's been so overwhelming and so lovely. Um, the author, Neil Gaiman, was one of the reasons that I was offered this special because he'd done a series on Amazon Prime and then we'd met in the course of a, a gig and ended oh, okay. up, he'd end up being on my podcast and then he'd listened to my trilogy, which is called the Alice Fraser Trilogy, very imaginatively, <laughs> and Savage, which is the first show of that trilogy. Um, it really caught him and mm -hmm. he recommended it to these commissioners, which was such a surreal thing. Sure. It was so nice. A, it was nice to make a new friend, and B, it's nice to be recommended. I am not normally <laughs> the kind of person who gets a, a hand up in that way. Sure. Uh, it was it was so overwhelmingly lovely. Mm -hmm. Like so many people have sent really lovely emails and messages, and at this point, it's quite an old show. But mm -hmm. I've been doing it off and on every year or so since I first did it because people keep asking for it. Back. Okay, it's one of those shows that I think I will keep doing until people stop asking for it because it's a fairly universal subject and it still means something to me to do it. I have also seen um, Ethos and the Resistance, which are also specials that you can see online in various platforms, so I highly recommend them. Comedy festival scene, especially, um, you know, Europe and uh, not America, let's say, sometimes features what we might call the solo show, which is like a distinct genre that's uh, not the same as, shall we say, doing stand-up at your local B-level comedy club. Yes, it's a very, very different creature. And there's a number of incentives that pressure a particular kind of output that I think is suited very much now for the online environment. Okay. So the yearly festival means you need to have a new hour of material every year. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a solo show, you get a 55-minute to an hour slot at a festival. So in America, the club circuit incentivizes you working on, say, a good 20 minutes, maybe a good half an hour, maybe a good 40 minutes, and you could run that for five years, mm -hmm. 10 years. Right. You know, Jerry Seinfeld very famously did the same 90-minute show for decades. <laughs> in Australia and the UK, because you're selling tickets every year at these different festivals and the same people come right. back year on year, you mm. want to have a new show for them. Okay, so that's one incentive. Second incentive is that if you're doing a show at a festival which has 500 other shows, mm -hmm. in the case of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival or... 5,000 other shows, <laughs> in the case of the Edinburgh Fringe, you're looking at an environment where people are watching three shows a day, five shows a day, eight shows a day, and jokes just don't cut it. I mean, if your show is just jokes, mm -hmm. that's fine. That's fun for them, but they absolutely will not remember you the next day. So both the longer format... Mm -hmm. It's it's sort of if you if you just do an hour of jokes, it doesn't feel like much. There needs to be some sense of narrative connection. It needs to be going somewhere for people's okay. attention to remain engaged. And secondly, if you are in this competitive environment where 
ticket sales rely on word of mouth and you're competing with hundreds or thousands of other shows. What you want is a show that has a narrative structure and it has something of your personality in it Okay. so that people remember you and are, are moved by you in a way that is distinguishable from the way they are moved by other performances in that day. So though all of those incentives align towards creating this one hour show, the the festival hour okay. format, which tends to be more um, more structured, more narrative, more personal, and not as much, not as purely serving the audience as a club set would be. Right. So a club set is just about making people laugh for five minutes or ten minutes or fifteen minutes or forty minutes or however long your slot is. Uh, and you'll if you do a joke and they don't like it you'll change your plan on the fly. <laughs> you'll do a different set or you'll, yep. do, you know, you'll, yep. you're there to kind of make them laugh yes. whoever they are. Yep. In a festival show, you're looking for your audience. You, you don't want to make the people in the room laugh. So, I mean, obviously you do, <laughs> but you want to, you want the people who like you to come to you. So it's a slightly different way of doing things. You bring them to you because okay. you have more time to work with them. And because you are controlling the whole room, you're not competing with other performers or for the same stage or for the same audience. They're there to see you. Okay. So there's more freedom in what you can do. You can do things that are a little bit unusual or challenging or you can go you can take them further or take them on a on an intellectual or emotional journey that wouldn't be possible in a club setting whether they where they're just there for a mm -hmm. laugh i noticed that in um your earlier special ethos and i'm paraphrasing so if i misrepresent it definitely correct me but you do a double act with a robot yes yeah yes I do. I mean, that's the conceit of the show. That so that's my second trilogy. My kind of, I guess, my discography okay. uh, goes. Everyone's a winner, which was about why I quit the law <laughs> to become a comedian, and then the trilogy: Savage, The Resistance, Empire, and okay. then this new trilogy, which goes Ethos, Mythos, and then what I was going to do this year, which is Kronos. Okay. Which is, but ethos is the idea in Aristotelian uh, rhetoric that, essentially speaking, it matters who you are, what people understand, how persuasive you are. Any kind of rhetorical act requires a sense of who somebody is. And you see that in every field. You will listen to somebody more, ideally. You'll listen to somebody more if they have some expertise in a subject. So you'll listen to a scientist or you need to know that they're a scientist or somebody will talk about oppression and you need to know that they have experienced it or that they have been witness to it in some way. And you, you see that in comedy with people going, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Right. It's that positioning of self in a kind of a rhetorical act. The speaker tells you who they are. And that gives you a sense as the audience of who they are in relation to you and why you should listen to them. Um, so in Ethos, the uh, robot doesn't have a person, a persona or a personality. He's a neutral actor. Um, and that was interesting to me to play with that because he can say anything. In a world now where some people are allowed to say, say stuff that other people aren't allowed to say, right. I was interested in having a character that had no ethos. Right. So you may have written him that way, but this audience member could not help projecting a personality onto him. We don't experience him as a personality-less agent. But what I wanted to ask in Savage, 
you know, which people should go and watch. I don't want to say too much about, but it includes some um, shared audio between you and your mother. Yes. So that was important to me. Well, it's incredibly important to the show. But watching, even though I guess it's not in the right chronological order, Savage and Ethos mm. back to back, in one you play the part of the father, and in the other you play the part of the daughter. Yes. So there's, I guess I could casually say, what's up with that? I mean, uh, is, <laughs> is that just the randomness of the order I watch them in, or is that a theme, parents and children? I think certainly in my shows that not not necessarily so much parents and children a little bit parents and children okay more relationality and power okay authority and love so in i think that that the experience of of having a mother who was sick is an experience of reframing your authority relationships you go from having a mother who looks after you to having to look after your mother that's okay. a big shift for mm -hmm. a child and then i have this very paternal father very fatherly father he's very uh, patriarchal but in okay. you know in the in a nice way <laughs> and sort of negotiating those relationships and understanding the world means that you have a, a frame for the mm -hmm. way that you engage with people um, i'm I interested in that and, and in the way that then you have a relationship with the audience that is essentially a power relationship. Right. Where th simultaneously they have power over you and you also have power over them. You actually... And that exchange is fascinating to me. Go, uh, I think uh, dovetailing with what you've been saying, um, in Savage, you become the first comedian that I've ever encountered who used the word panopticon. <laughs> Graduate students in pop culture all over the world had little mini comedy orgasms when you did that. Uh, so, hey, thank you for using the word panopticon, but that also seems totally apt for the type of themes that you're discussing. Yeah, I like I like comedy as a way of making big ideas um, digestible. The thing that fascinates me in in the world, in life, is ideas. That process of having an idea, that feeling of getting that mm -hmm. light bulb, of shifting something fundamental in your way of seeing the world, right. is my favorite feeling in the world. And I love to give that feeling to somebody else. And with comedy, that lets you package <laughs> an idea and mm -hmm. present it to somebody, to an audience, and then you get to feel them get it because they laugh. If it's packaged as a joke, then when they get it, you hear them, you see them, you feel mm. them, get it. And that is such a delight to me. And I, you know, my, my dad used to ask me why I didn't go into the theater or something more right. kind of <laughs> high art, you know, writing novels. Sure. Or you know, I was always kind of a, a wordy person. And for me, it's that nobody thinks that comedy is too fancy for them. Yeah. I don't want to only be talking to intellectual people. I want mm. to, I really believe that you, if you deliver a joke in the right way, if you if you have a complicated mm -hmm. idea, but you can give a path to it that is clear enough, then people can come along and have this great idea, even if it's a complicated idea, even if it's a big idea, even right. if it's kind of an overwhelming idea. So I, I can give you an example, if you like. Okay, let's hear it. Uh, which is from Missos. Okay. I was, I was thinking about the fact that people... Is the big idea is that people um, value measurable things over unquantifiable things, even when they acknowledge that the unquantifiable things are in essence more valuable. So happiness is priceless, 
but many right. people trade their happiness for money. Sure. Or whatever it happens to be. Uh, so, and I saw this very much when I worked in a law firm. A lot of really utterly miserable people, fundamentally miserable people who would have been, you know, who didn't like what they did, but they felt like they had to because you could quantify success okay. and prestige and money and you can't quantify happiness. So I thought, okay, how do I convey this in a, in a joke form? And, of course, the way that I did it was to put it in a dick joke. Okay. <laughs> so you say, I, I talked about my teenage brother and his teenage friends and this obsession that young men particularly have with quantifiable penis quantities, length, girth, weight, I assume. Okay. <laughs> and they don't pay any attention to the unquantifiable things that are essential about a penis, which is to say availability, enthusiasm, appropriateness of erection. If you could have a perfectly proportioned penis, if it gets hard in a children's playground, I want nothing to do with it. That is a bad quality <laughs> penis. So for me, that was fun because I got to take this like actually quite big philosophical idea and make it silly and fun and dumb and also comprehensible and communicable. Yeah, I once um, did a bit trying to explain something about Kierkegaard and then yeah. used a uh, porno as the example to illustrate it. Yep, and, uh, high culture, low culture, yes. mashup. It's great. <laughs> Speaking of something that's quantifiable, something that uh, began in 2020 is the Daily Satirical podcast, The Last Post. Yes. Yes, the Daily Satirical news podcast, set in an alternate dimension. Set in an the alternate last dimension. Post. I am the host, I am the only writer, and it is completely crushing me, and I'm loving it. Well, I'm glad you're loving it. That's one of those things that can't be quantified that we should uh, you know, incorporate into our lives. I actually did write down two questions about the last post, and, and one was just going to be how is it going, which you kind of just mentioned. Uh, how is it going? I mean, it is, it's so much work. It's so much work. <laughs> you know, when you, when um, you announced so that you were going to start doing well. it in December, my first thought was, that is going to be so much work. <laughs> it is an enormous amount of work, um, but it is also fascinating and interesting and logistically so incredibly fucking complex mm. to get it out and to get it sorted and to get the guests in and to figure sure. out how the news arcs are going to work and not to be repetitive but to have through lines that operate mm -hmm. because we don't record each episode subsequently to the previous episode. So we have a guest in to record four episodes, and but they don't record Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Okay. They will record this coming Thursday, next Wednesday, <laughs> the Saturday after, and then oh. the Thursday after that. And so I have to track in my head both where I think the real news will be and where also these fake news storylines will be right. on that day in the future, <laughs> in the imaginary future of an alternate universe. universe. Yeah, that's actually uh, those jokes. jotted down as a question, um, whether it's as a comedic writer or the satire or whatever. Why was the alternative universe aspect important to include? A couple of reasons. First of all, because I'm a big fantasy nerd, big fantasy sci-fi nerd, and that was fun to me as an idea. Okay. As a funny idea to have me in an alternate universe who is more successful and busier and also to play with the kind of the absurd which i like and these fantasy tropes and sci-fi tropes sure There's... secondly because it would be so hard to do a daily satirical news podcast set in this dimension without <laughs> a writing team that would require 
you know, I couldn't bank them. I couldn't do, I couldn't take a day off. Right. I would not be able to yep. take even one day off. There would be no ebb and flow. There would be right. no movement for other things that were happening in my life. Um, we would have to probably pay a writing team rather right. than me doing it all myself just because it would be so relentless. At mm. least this way we can we can do a bit of a rush and then buy ourselves you know a week of spare time. <laughs> so the theme of the book I'm writing uh, is religious satire. In Savage, there's a character who pops up called Dick. Dick seems like... Uh, he might have been a well-meaning but religiously oriented character who gave some unintendedly inappropriate advice and then inspired some riffs. <laughs> so why was including Dick? Why was it important to, character? to include um, the subtopic of religion into the show of Savage? Like, what were your thoughts there? Or how do you treat religion when you write satire? Uh, it was entirely the genesis of the show. The narrative in the show is true about why I wrote that show and why I couldn't write that show. It made me angry what he said because okay. it didn't seem like he was talking to me. It seemed like he okay. was talking, he was trying to tick a box with an invisible interlocutor in a way that was worse than useless. I found that frustrating and it made me wonder about faith because I was, I was brought up as a Buddhist without a theistic religion. Okay. I'm also quite careful I don't, I don't want to mock anyone's religion. Right. I don't want to mock anyone's belief. I don't think that's a useful thing to do. I don't think it's a kind thing to do. I don't think it is my job. There are plenty okay. of comedians who do that, and I'm sure they do it better than I would if I wanted to do it, which I don't. So for me, it's all—it's more about, you know, addressing this particular manifestation of somebody's behavior rather than their, his belief. For me, it was an expression of his selfishness okay. rather than his religion. And uh, I was a bit worried that people who were religious in that vein would take it badly, but I had this whole group of young Christians from a youth conference come on the last day of the first season that I did it in Melbourne, okay. and they loved it. They were all, you know, they gave me a standing ovation, which was <laughs> really lovely, and that reassured me a little bit. But, of course, if people are looking to be offended, I'm sure there's things that I've said that they would take amiss. But it's never my intention to diminish people with my comedy. It's an observation. I'm sort of testing the thesis that in the uh, years since September 11th, there's been more religious satire afoot. Mm. Do you have any just opinion about that? Or even you think I'm off base or some other... Interpretations. I, I don't know. I wouldn't have a way to quantify religious satire sure. <laughs> um, or track it. I think certainly people are more polarized and more okay. willing to be cruel to the people to whom they feel opposed. Um, okay. Because people are more polarized, they are more willing to directly attack fundamental beliefs in that way. That's a possibility. That's just a hypothesis. Sure. But, yeah, that might be a thing. As an experienced comedian, if you were in a position as a almost as a mentor, like if you were around younger comedians at an open mic or after a show, what kind mm. of advice would you give about doing satire? Satire specifically or comedy in general, I guess? Oh, well, either way, but I guess in this hypothetical scenario, I'm imagining... An open micer 
did some uh, Trump or some religion jokes, but they bombed. And then you kindly took them aside and said, you know, this is what you should be doing. <laughs> oh, well, I guess it would depend on how they bombed and what <laughs> was wrong with the jokes and uh, all of that stuff. I would say don't go for the cheap jokes. Mm -hmm. Don't don't say the thing that everyone's saying. There's a million people in the world making Trump jokes or Brexit jokes. Mm -hmm. Now, this is one of the things about satire with in an age of social media. Right. You cannot say the first thing that comes to mind. Right. Because there'll be a hundred thousand people who have done it better than you and are already going viral with it. <laughs> so you need to find your own angle on on it. You need to turn it upside down. If it's boring or repetitive or derivative or predictable, okay, then it's not interesting. Uh, who's who's good at satire these days? I mean, who's a positive example? Uh, Josh Gondelman is very good at satire these days. Of course, I think Andy Zaltzman's very good at satire. <laughs> I think John Oliver is good at satire. Okay. He can go for a cheap joke now and then, but he does genuinely open new subjects, and he's doing something really new with the form that I think is wonderful. Any other thoughts about satire you'd like to get off your chest? I don't like satire when it's just the audience's own ideas being reflected back at them with a gloss on. I like satire when it's genuinely challenging, genuinely disruptive. Mm -hmm. There is a kind of, of political satire that is popular at the moment, which is, I'm sure, very important and very valuable. It's mm -hmm. an in-group satire. It's people smugly sure. laughing about the people that they don't like. That's fine and that's important and that's nice to have a feminist show where every joke, the punchline is how shit men are or sure. <laughs> whatever it happens to be. That's fun and fine and that's a genre. But for me, satire is something more disruptive than that, more disconcerting than that. Excellent. Well, I really want to thank you, Alice, for... Uh calling in from the other side of the world. I've, um, you know, I lived in New Zealand for many years. I've been to Australia many times. I love that part of the world. Wish you well. Thank I you hope so you're much. safe. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank I really you. appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you. Thank you. And there you have it. Thank you very much, Alice, for doing that interview. Uh, it was a real pleasure. I'm a real fan. Uh, do check out her special, Savage. I've seen it. She has some other specials on other streaming services. Uh, online platforms and so on. So check those out. Go to her website. I'll have links for all that stuff in the description of this podcast. She's very active on Instagram, actually. So if you do any of those social media things, look her up on Instagram. Uh, I really appreciate you, Alice. I really appreciate all of you for listening. Please, you know, give us the old thumbs up and like and leave comments and share with your friends. We're trying to get the word out of this project. This podcast is part of the research of a book I'm writing on religious satire. I've been telling friends the book is about 75% done, but that that last 25% feels like Zeno's paradox. And hey, you know what? I'm not even going to explain what that means. If Alice can talk about the Panopticon, I can talk about Zeno's paradox. But thank you for listening. I want to thank my friend Mark Bell. Uh, he is the musician whose organ music we use as the uh, theme music for this podcast. Uh, he has an excellent CD out of um, Bach organ music, and he gave us permission to use it. So please check that out. That's Mark Bell. I also want to thank my very good friend, Jeff Geddert. He uh, gives me advice on audio engineering. Anything about this podcast that sounds good is due to him. Anything that sounds uh, iffy is due to me. And also, Jeff uh, helps by contributing additional writing material. So thank you, Jeff Geddert. And that just remains for me uh, to thank you, the listener, 
for coming to today's episode. Uh, look up old episodes. Look up our website. If you've come across any articles about uh, religion, pseudoscience that you'd like to draw to my attention, or if you want to um, ask a question for a future Q&A show, please use our email address. It's just comical. Um, there's no just. It is comicalheathen at gmail. That's it. So just email us if you want to. Anyway, uh, with one last thanks, I've been your host, Dr. Jerry Jockey. <laughs>